Good evening. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. A little bit of a bait and switch tonight because I'm going to be discussing the Book of Ruth and the upcoming holiday of Shavuos. But I'm so glad that you're here with us. I'm so glad that we're together. There's opportunity to study together. And this is the last opportunity we have in this weekly format to be able to study together before the holiday of Shavuos, which is coming. So I'm particularly grateful to all of you for joining tonight. Tonight is May 13th, Thursday night. And tonight is the last installment of the background subjects that I want to provide for you concerning the Book of Ruth in order to deepen our appreciation and understanding when we read it and study it on Shavuos. There is a pervasive idea. You'll see it, you'll read it, you'll hear it, perhaps you believe it. It is ubiquitous and it is wrong. I am referring to the idea that in Jewish law, when a couple marries, the husband acquires his wife. The wife is the acquisition of the husband. It's not true. It doesn't matter how many times you hear it. It doesn't matter how many times you read it. It is so frequently mistranslated in translations. You will see it, you will read it, but it doesn't matter. It's not true. There is no sense in any source of Jewish law that a husband acquires a wife or that a wife is somehow the husband's possession. Nowhere, no place, not true. But there is a reason that so many people make this mistake. So, let's see the source of the mistake. Let's see why it is, in fact, wrong, which is something that we derive from the book of Ruth. And then let's try to understand why is it misleading such that so many people make this mistake. Let's start with the Gemara, the Talmud. The Talmud in the Masefta Kedushin, Tractate of Kedushin, which concerns marriage, says that marriage is effected, a marriage relationship is created by a man giving an object of value like a ring, but it could be any object, to a woman who accepts that object. That action, properly witnessed, creates marriage. Then the Talmud says, how do we know that? What is the source of that? And the Talmud says, the source is in the Parsha of Chayisara, in the book of Bereshis, the narrative concerning the field belonging to Ephraim. So let's just review that narrative quickly. 
The parish of Chayesara begins that Sarah, the wife of Avraham, dies, and Avraham needs a burial place for her. <clears throat> so he goes to this man named Ephraim, who has a field, and Avraham purchases the field from Ephron. It's in Hebron. And the word that is used to describe that uh, narrative is the Pasuk that says, Ha'aretz asher kana Avraham. The land, the piece of land that Avraham, now the way it's usually translated is that Avraham purchased because he did purchase it. The Torah tells us he paid 400 pieces of silver and our rabbis described that that's an astronomical sum for such a piece of land. In any event, he purchased it. So those words, Ha'aretz asher kana Avraham, the land that Avraham purchased. And that narrative, says the Talmud, is the model for our marriage ceremony. Now, it is true, it is correct, that within the context of that verse, the intent of the verse is to say that Avraham purchased this field from Ephraim. That's correct. But that is not an accurate translation of the word kana. It does not mean purchase or acquire. The word kana, kuf, nun, hey in Hebrew, means kinyon. Kuf, nun, yud, vav, final nun. Kinyon. A kinyon is an action. So let's see what it really means. And this is what we find in the Book of Ruth. Last week we discussed that Boaz is willing to agree to two requests that Ruth makes of him. Ruth comes to visit him at night in the field and she makes two requests of him. One is, will he redeem the fields that belonged to Naomi? Remember, Naomi had been a wealthy person, but when she left and she became impoverished and her fields were sold off to creditors to satisfy the debts that she left behind. So a goel, a redeemer, that's what Ruth asks Boaz to do, to redeem the field. That means to purchase them from whoever is the current owner and return them magnanimously, generously to Naomi. And now she will have her fields back. That's the first request that Ruth makes. And the second request is she asks that Boaz marry her. She's the one that proposes to him. Okay. So, Boaz says, I would love to do both of those things. However, I am not the closest relative. And the opportunity 
to be able to buy back the fields and return them to Naomi, that mitzvah of geulas karka, of redemption of land, to return it to someone who had become impoverished, to take them out of the cycle of poverty, which we discussed in the past, that right to perform that mitzvah is offered to the closest relative. Boaz's uncle, who was called Ploni, was the closest relative, so he has the first opportunity to redeem the fields. So Boaz says to, to Ruth at night, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go take care of it, and if it's possible for me to do it, I will do it. Okay. So the next morning, this is the next part of the narrative in the book of Ruth, the next morning, Boaz finds Ploni, his uncle, and he gathers ten men as witnesses to what's about to happen. Ruth is not there. The current owners of the fields that used to belong to Naomi, those current owners are not there. This scene is Boaz and Ploni and ten witnesses. So, the first subject that Boaz raises with his uncle is the fields that belong to Naomi. And he asks his uncle, Ploni, the closest relative, will you perform the mitzvah to be a goel, to purchase those fields from whoever the current owners are and give them back to Naomi? So, he says the following words to Ploni, and please listen carefully to the words. He says to Ploni, do you want to be the Goel, the Redeemer for Naomi? And Boaz says, listen carefully, if your answer is yes, then kene neged hayoshvim, the word kene, kinyan. Make a kinyan in the presence of these ten witnesses that I've assembled. So what does that word kana, kene, kinyan mean? If kinyan means to acquire, which is how it's always translated, but it's wrong, if kinyan means to acquire, then it makes no sense. It is completely illogical because the owners of the field are not there. No one is buying anything at this point in the narrative. For Boaz to say to Ploni, Kenei Neged Hayoshvim, has got to mean something else besides acquire. Because if it means acquire, it doesn't make any sense. Even though every translation you read will say, will translate, Kana or Kane or Kinyan as acquire or an acquisition. But it's obviously wrong. Let's go step by step. Then Boaz says to the Goel, to Ploni, and if you're going to do the mitzvah of redemption, to buy back the fields and return them to the possession of Naomi, then Rus. Kanisa, 
Again, the same word, kana, kanisa, kinyan, to Ruth. What does it mean? Kinyan. Now, the context is, it means that you will marry Ruth. But what does the word Kinyan mean? Okay. Plony says, no thank you. I decline the opportunity. And then we have the verse that explains the whole subject. Referring to this act called Kinyan, the, the next Pasuk says as follows. And this has been the established practice among the Jewish people, a principle of Jewish law, for any purchase, the Alhatmura, and for any exchange, or to establish any obligation. Right, lekayen kol davar means to to establish, to commit to a commitment or a promise or an obligation. That's what a kinyan is. A kinyan is an action that either affects a purchase, an exchange, or a commitment. Depending on the context. Sometimes it means purchase. Sometimes it means creating a commitment or an obligation. Well, it sounds very confusing. How can one word mean two completely separate ideas? The answer is as follows. The word Kenyan and all of its derivatives means an action that causes or creates a change in status. That's what Kinyan means. An action that effects a change in status. It could be a change in status, for example, the change in ownership. That's a change in status. Before the field belonged to this person and now the field belongs to that person. That's one kind of change in status. Or, it could be a change in status, such as accepting a commitment that creates marriage or a commitment to do a mitzvah. The change in status is now I am one who before I was not obligated. Now I have obligated myself. I have committed myself. So Boaz says to Plony, if you choose to take the opportunity that's being offered to you to buy back the fields and give them to Naomi, that's clearly a purchase. Now, in the presence of witnesses, commit yourself by doing an action called a Kenyan. The action of the Kenyan, when Boaz says, when Boaz says to, to, to Plony, he is saying, make a Kenyan in the presence of these witnesses that you commit yourself, you obligate yourself 
to performing this mitzvah of returning the property to Naomi through your later purchase from whoever the current owners are. And that's what's going on between a man and a woman standing under a chuppah. Both of them are participating in a kinyan, meaning the giving and the accepting of the ring, and that creates the commitment to marriage. It changes their status. The Kenyan changes their status from two single individuals into one married couple. That's why the word Kenyan applies to marriage just as it applies to purchase, even though the two subjects are completely different from each other. So, let's ask this question. Of all the possible forms that you might imagine that would create a marriage relationship, a marriage ceremony, why would our rabbis in the Talmud invoke this particular narrative of Abraham purchasing a field, which is so different from what is actually happening under the chuppah because there's no purchase it's simply the change in status of the commitment. Why invoke that narrative? What, and what that means, by the way, is that every single person that attends a Jewish wedding who is familiar with the Talmud, when they're at the wedding, they're thinking to themselves, ah, oh, there's a connection between what's happening here and Avram purchasing the field from Ephron. Why make that connection? If, in fact, what is happening is not a purchase or an acquisition. Let me share this answer with you. Let's go back to the narrative of Avraham and Ephron. So Avraham needs to buy a field, a burial place for Sarah. He goes to Ephron, they negotiate, and finally they come to an agreement and Abraham pays the money for the purchase of the field. And then listen to the words of the Torah. Vayakam hasadeh vahama'ara asherbo la'avraham. Now, what that verse means to say is the field and the cave that is in the field, right? We know ma'arat hamachpelah the cave that is in that field, which is where Sarah was buried and then the other patriarchs are buried, and that's now in, in Hebron. What the, what the verse means to say is the field and the cave within the field comes into the possession of Abraham. Vayakam, the meaning of it is it comes into the possession. Hasadeh, Bahamara, the field and the cave, comes into the possession Avraham of Avraham. The only thing is that's not what the word means. Vayakam does not mean come into the possession of. That's the that's what's actually happening. That's how you would translate it. But in fact, the word Vayakam means to rise up. That's a strange word to use. The field rose in what? 
fields don't rise, why would you use the word vayakam, that the field rose, with the understanding that what it really means is it came into the possession of? Rashi asks this question. And Rashi says, Takuma Haisalo, the field was elevated. It rose spiritually. Sheyatza Miad Hedyot, it left the possession of Ephron, Liad Melech, and came into the possession of royalty, of Avraham. That's the first part of the land of Israel that comes into the legal possession of the Jewish people. And when that piece of land entered Avraham's possession, it rose spiritually. It rose in holiness. It was elevated. And that is what happens at the moment of marriage. It's not a purchase. It's not an acquisition. It's not the same kind of transaction as happened between Avraham and Ephron. But it is likewise a change in status. An elevation in holiness. Kedusha. Sanctity. Holiness. And that's why we call a marriage ceremony, Kiddushin, because it is an act through which these two individuals are going to elevate themselves in holiness through being married to each other. That's the change in status. One of the several reasons that we read the Book of Ruth on the holiday of Shavuos is because what happens to Ruth and Boaz is what happened to the entire Jewish people at Mount Sinai, which is what we commemorate on the holiday of Shavuos. An elevation in holiness at receiving the Torah from God. An elevation in holiness at the union of God and the Jewish people just like an elevation in holiness at the union of Ruth and Boaz. And this concept is foreshadowed at the very beginning of the story. So let's go back to the very beginning, the beginning of the book of Ruth. Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. They have two sons, Machlon and Chilion. They leave Israel, they leave their home base, Lechem, Bethlehem, and they go to Moab. Moab is the land which is now Jordan on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Their two sons, Machlon and Chilion, marry women from Moab, where they're living now. Ruth marries Machlon, Arpah marries Chilion. Then Elimelech dies. Then Machlon and Chilion 
die. And now Naomi is bereft with these two women, her former daughters-in-law. Naomi decides to return home, to go back to Israel, to go back to where she came from, Beis Lechem. And so she says to these two young women, Ruth and Arpah, she says, Lechna, Shovna, go back home. Go back to your families where you came from. Go back to Moab, where we are now. Go back to your own family. We're no longer related to each other. You're young. You have your lives in front of you. Go back and make your life among your own people, in your own home. Go back home. Batishak lohen. Naomi kisses them both goodbye. Batis ena kolon kena. And the three of them cry. An emotional scene. But at just that moment, the two younger women part paths. Batishak Arpa Lechamosa. Arpa kissed Naomi goodbye and went back to her home in Moab as Naomi had suggested. Verus Dovkabo, but Ruth hugged Naomi. Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth accompanied Naomi back to Israel. Ruth accompanied Naomi back to a life of Judaism and observance of mitzvahs and connection with God. Ruth returned with Naomi to a life of greatness for all time among the Jewish people, to become the first woman who is praised as an Eishes Chayo, a woman of valor. It is to Ruth that the first time that phrase is used, it's used to praise Ruth. Allow me to share an insight from Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth who was a renowned rabbi for many years in Antwerp, Belgium. Vatishak Arpa Lechamosa. Arpa kissed Naomi. Verus Davkabo. But Ruth embraced and clung to her. Both of these young women, he says, had good intentions. Both of these women meant well. But Arpa, in the final analysis, was satisfied with an externalized gesture. She kisses, while Ruth cleaves, hugs, embraces with a superhuman devotion that would not let her go. That is what Shavuos was for the Jewish people standing in Mount Sinai. An embrace, a devotion, 
a superhuman devotion to God and God's Torah that will not let go. That's what we celebrate on Shavuos. That's what Shavuos should mean for each one of us this year and every year. Not just to kiss, to admire, to feel affection for God, for Torah, for observing the commandments. No, that's not enough. But to embrace, to hug, to cleave, to want to be committed and attached, to have a devotion to an intimacy with God and an enthusiasm for observing God's commandments. That's the story of Ruth. And that is the story of Shavuos. And may that be the story of every one of us this coming Yom Tov. I want to wish you all a wonderful evening, a great Shabbos, and Chag Sameach. Enjoy this Yom Tov of Shavuos and appreciate the depth that the Book of Ruth and Ruth herself brings to our own devotion and clinging to God.